You're listening to Common Threads, a podcast about ethical fashion, hosted by Ruth McGilp and Alice Cruikshank. We go beyond buzzwords and PR peddling interviews and instead dive deep into what really matters. Each week we break down the big issues, all with a little help from some amazing guests. Let's change the fashion game, one conversation at a time. Hello, thanks for joining us for another episode of Common Threads. We cannot believe it's nearly Christmas. This year has gone so fast, though I'm sure we're all happy to put 2020 right in the bin and move on swiftly. In the bin, could not agree more. So as we're approaching the festive season, we thought we'd round off this segment of Series 2 with a solo episode before we take a little break in the new year. We're going to be looking at six of the biggest myths about ethical fashion today, and we're going to talk you through what you actually need to know So I guess outside of the ethical fashion kind of echo chamber that we both find ourselves in, there is just a lot of misinformation and conflicting information that we see about maybe what is and isn't ethical fashion. So we hope this episode can help you clarify a few things. We both really truly believe that ethical fashion is for everyone. And we wanted to showcase that a bit today by taking a step back and targeting some of those factors that are most commonly misunderstood. Yes, we want to turn as many people as possible onto ethical fashion. What's the saying? It's better to have a million people doing things imperfectly than a few individuals who are getting it totally right. That absolutely is a case with ethical fashion, which is why it's so important that we dispel these myths. So let's get straight into myth number one. Ethical fashion is expensive. Ruth and I have a lot to say on this one, that's for sure. So yeah, when we're looking at ethical fashion, on face value, it is expensive. We're so used to seeing t-shirts that are like £5 even, £10, £15, that when you see something that's £40, £50, it does seem like a lot of money. But the reality is we we just don't understand the true value of clothes. So clothing is one of the few things that's actually gone down against inflation over the years. Things now cost less than they did in the 1960s and the 1970s. And I think when you see big bargain retailers like Primark and um, all those sort of places, what they'll normally say to you is the reason their clothes are so cheap is their economy of scale or all these other little hacks that they have. And it's total nonsense. Like, yes, if you're making 50,000 t-shirts that are all in the same fabric, you're going to save a little bit of money. But no, that is not why their clothes are cheap. Their clothes are cheap because they are exploiting people, they are making really shitty quality clothes, and they're just about making as much profit as possible. And something to bear in mind with clothes and the cost of clothes is the countries of manufacture have moved even since the early 2000s. You know, when it was made in the UK um, in the, the 1900s, the late 1900s, went over to China in the early 2000s. And even countries like China and India have now been replaced by places like Myanmar because places that were historically very cheap are now getting expensive. So if brands did care about people, if brands did care about making good quality clothing, they would stick with these factories they trust, but instead they keep moving to the the cheapest place. It's the race to the bottom, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I was going to say it's just that constant race to the bottom and it's like, when is it going to end? And I want to say as well, because... We've talked before about how all fashion is handmade and it's labour intensive. I think if you've ever made your own clothes, like during lockdown, I sewed a pair of tracksuit bottoms because I couldn't find any that I could afford or that were long enough for me. And the amount of labour that goes into it just kind of proves to you that like making garments is a really highly skilled job and they need to be 
be paid fairly for that. Another kind of argument that I make to people that say ethical fashion is too expensive is that it's not just about the quality of the garment you're buying, you know, from a sustainable brand. It's about the quantity. So it's about the rate of consumption. You can't, you know, if you're switched to ethical fashion and you buy the same quantity of clothing that you bought when you bought fast fashion, it's definitely going to cost you more. But you can't have that fast fashion mindset if you're going to be kind of decoupling yourself from that system. You know, even if you're buying secondhand, you see people on Depop doing these hauls of like charity shop clothing. That's not sustainable, that rate of consumption. So it's not just about tackling, you know, the brands that you buy. It's about tackling the rate at which you consume from those brands. So I think for me anyway, when I quit fast fashion, I was buying the kind of same quantity and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so expensive. But now I buy so much less that I actually spend less than I did when I was shopping in Primark and Zara. So I think that's something to keep in mind for sure. Another issue, and we've seen a lot of conversation about this uh, this year, which is great about billionaires and how billionaires are intrinsically unethical. And fashion is an industry that creates a lot of very rich people, a lot of billionaires, a lot of millionaires. You know, we've seen a lot of news about Philip Green this week because of the Arcadia Group going into administration. And I think his net worth is something like two billion. So cheap fashion, you know, these really, really low prices that maybe consumers love makes these old white men really, really rich. And these bargain prices also, you know, they might seem like a really good deal, but they're actually ripping us off as the consumer too, because we end up buying more, we end up buying you know, very low quality clothing. So in the end, we actually spend the same amount. So it's kind of like a lose-lose for everyone, apart from these rich old men. And I actually saw a quote on Twitter earlier um, from Mustavis Udin. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but he's a very vocal um, factory owner in Bangladesh who owns a sustainable denim factory. And he writes a column in the Daily Star, the Bangladesh newspaper. I just want to read this quote because I think it kind of sums up this issue. He says... If an industry has one part in which companies are making huge profits, while in another part workers are going hungry, something has clearly gone very wrong, something is out of kilter. So I think that kind of proves, you know, the the system in itself is is off balance, you know, there's something wrong here. This is not the status quo that we should have. And this conversation has also been going on recently. Um, Azure Barber has been talking for a really long time about this idea of like, fast fashion is not kind of democratic. It's not, you know, helping people who don't have money working classes buy clothing. That's not what fuels the system. It's, it's you know, the consumption of people that have enough money. It's the overconsumption. And she's actually um, last week made this hashtag, I quit fast fashion because, and I'd really recommend going through it. And um, I wrote an article that summed up it, which we'll link in the show notes. But it's basically about if you can quit fast fashion, if you're not on that breadline, you're not just buying clothing to survive, you know, you have it in you to quit fast fashion, then you should. And there's loads of great tips on there too. Yeah, I think everything you've said and absolutely everything that Asia always flags up is that these big fashion companies, they're not charitable, they're not altruistic. Like they make us believe that, oh, we're doing this to help the good, hardworking British people. No, they're not. We'll come back to that later. But yeah, that is such a big myth. And yeah, it's it's fine for us to have these conversations. It can get very academic about, you know, 
why ethical fashion is expensive. But the reality is a lot of us just cannot quite justify as not £150 for a new dress or whatever. So by far the most accessible way to start shopping more ethically is to shop secondhand. It's so easy, you know, you've got Depop, eBay, charity shops, clothes swapping with friends, clothing rental, all of these things are actually really easy and it's definitely the easiest way to start your your ethical fashion journey. Absolutely. Secondhand, again, don't be buying at the same rate as you were with fast fashion, but it's definitely the most affordable way. And Alice and I both don't have big budgets to spend on these sustainable brands. So like, I really do understand that pain point and it's something that put me off for a long time. But I think when you take into account, you know, the various variables there, bit of a rant I went on then, but there you go. (laughs) So I think we'll move on to our second myth, which is this very old school, out of date myth that ethical fashion is not stylish. And I think this very much did used to be true. Where ethical fashion started, even like less than 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, there were so few genuinely ethical fashion brands. On my blog, I actually used to have this list of like, I called it like the ethical fashion brand, like master list or something. And I found it quite easy to have that because there weren't that many. And then it started getting to like 100, 150. And then I was like, I need to stop doing this. This is just like so much free labor on my part. But, you know, it just shows that now the choice is totally limitless. There is so much to choose from. You know, someone asks you, oh, where do I buy sustainable trainers from? I can send them 10 different websites, whereas it used to be one. So it really has changed. The landscape has totally changed. A lot of that is because of these smaller brands, the startups and the independent brands that are doing things more sustainably. And that's in part due to the transformation of education, you know, universities teaching fashion and textiles in a very much, you know, more sustainable way. So yeah, all of that is to say that there is so much choice of fashion that is actually stylish, actually fun and wearable. Whereas maybe in the past, it it was a little bit, you know, hemp sack, plain white t-shirt kind of style, which even as quite a minimalist dresser was very boring. <laughs> but that's why secondhand is so great, again, because it gives you this chance to experiment with your style. You can wear secondhand fast fashion, you know, I'm not against that at all. That's often what I buy. So you can still kind of wear trends or trend-led pieces if you like. And ultimately, the most ethical garment is, of course, the one you already own. You know, ethical fashion may not be to your taste, but you've got your whole wardrobe that is, and that's the most ethical thing you can do. Hell yes, 100%. And I was absolutely in that camp I was like ethical fashion is not for me it's boring it's bland anyone who's seen me will know that I do not do neutrals I am color I am extravagance but there is the choice now you just have to kind of get a bit more creative and ultimately the more popular ethical fashion becomes the more options there are going to be I mean at the moment there are brands doing streetwear we got scandy chic kind of look we got bowls and colorful prints there's literally everything I mean I I have a master list as well Ruth for working with my clients and yeah I've got over 200 brands on there now and it's all very different for very specific looks so there is options and I think as well the more you get into ethical fashion the more you realise that you actually don't like trendy clothing, you've just been made to like trendy clothing. Because yes, if you want to dress trendy, you're not going to always find an ethical version. But when you stop shopping with these fast fashion brands, like I actually don't know what's 
in trend for autumn winter 2020 as a stylist that's probably terrible but no neither do I neither do I it's like if somebody asks you I think when you work in fashion people are like oh what's cool or like where should I buy a cool outfit and you're like I don't know don't ask me I know I am not cool (laughs) but I don't regret that because rediscovering your own style is the best thing and it's the best way to kind of learn to shop ethically as well But for people who do have a bit more of an extravagant style like me, then I think vintage is definitely going to be a key pillar of your sustainability journey. Also, rental companies are really cool now. A lot of cult pieces from brands like Ganny and Kitri and stuff I see popping up on these rental sites all the time. But again, I think it's important to say an item can only be sustainable if you love it. So If you see a t-shirt and you're like, "Mm, I don't love it, but you know, it's ethically made, it's organic cotton, whatever, I'll buy that instead of this t-shirt from Topshop, for one of a better brand that I actually really like. If you're not going to wear that ethical t-shirt, then it's not necessarily a better choice. So there is a lot of kind of weighing things up, but the more you appreciate your own style, then the easier that all becomes. Absolutely. There's actually one of the members of Fashion Revolution Scotland with me, her kind of mentality is that she'll buy from fast fashion, but she'll maybe save up for it for a really long time, make sure she absolutely loves it, you know, style it with everything in her wardrobe. And that's just what she does. And I don't think that's any worse or better than buying loads and loads of stuff from sustainable brands. So just goes to show it's all about that kind of personal balance, checks and balances that you have. Anyway, moving on to myth number three. So this one is quite pervasive, I think, and it's that if a garment is made in the UK, then it is ethical. And I think we've seen this myth busted in quite spectacular style in 2020 because of the Boohoo scandal. And just to sum it up briefly, maybe we'll link to more information because it's a long story, but basically Boohoo were contracting labour from garment factories in Leicester in England and basically came to be a Sunday Times um, expose on it that these workers were being paid less than minimum wage, something like £3.50 an hour. They weren't being provided with appropriate PPE for COVID and all sorts of other kind of labour rights and health and safety violations. And I think for me, it wasn't really a surprise because there was a really similar um, expose in 2018, I think. Um, There was a whole uh, dispatches documentary about it. So it's kind of like history just repeats itself. And it just goes to show that, you know, garment factories in the UK, a lot of them are the same condition as some of the documentaries we see about garment factories abroad. It it doesn't mean that. And I think in Britain, we have this uh, sense of superiority, you know, that we have a really great labour force and we are really innovative, but it's just not true. It's a total myth. And that's a whole other story. But a lot of this is about exploitation, you know, that's at the heart of it. And whatever country we're in, we find people to exploit, whether that's immigrant workers or vulnerable people or, you know, having factories in areas where there's been a lot of deprivation. And it, it just it doesn't make sense that this is happening, but policymakers allow it to happen because it's just built on the exploitation of people that we don't see as important. Um, is this kind of us versus them mentality. And I think during that Leicester scandal, we saw so many people completely outraged that this was happening on British soil, you know, not in our blighty, but this has been happening for decades. Britain literally invented sweatshops, you know, 
the first sweatshops were in Britain, Victorian, you know, child labour, all of that, and not much has changed. We just export a lot of it these days to Bangladesh, and I wish that we had that same kind of outrage about sweatshops elsewhere. You know, that's what I would like to see. But th all this to say is that if you see on the label of clothing, you know, made in the UK, just know that the country of origin is not enough to prove something's ethical because there are good factories and there are bad factories in every country. There are amazing factories in Bangladesh, like the one I mentioned, um, the denim expert that Mustavis owns. And there are amazing factories in China and there are horrible factories in the UK. So it's really quite, um, it's like xenophobic almost to like make a generalization like that. And also that this is just a very global system and there's not really many garments you can make 100% in one country because it's, you know, the zips, there's threads, there's packaging, you know, it's very hard pressed to find a brand that's like we're 100% made in the UK. So I think we just need to take a step back and maybe not make judgments based on country of origin, but ask more questions. Yeah, I think the made in the UK myth is kind of one of the most difficult ones to unpack. And this is absolutely when brands will really hammer home with the, the whole, oh, economies of scale and savings down the line. No, if clothing is incredibly cheap, then the people making it have not been paid well. Do not accept any other answer. It is a lie. And what I've seen popping up a lot recently, which is very, very sneaky, and it annoys me a lot, and it's very prevalent on Instagram, is when brands will put in their bio, UK designed, which is clearly alluding to the fact it's trying to make us think that it's made in the UK, it's this small brand, it's ethical, it's all rainbows and sunshine. UK designed does not mean it was made in the UK, it means that someone designed it in an office in the UK and then it was still made in a factory at the other side of the world that that brand may never have actually been to. It is so sneaky and I am not here for it. I think especially with small brands, if they can't tell you who made the garments, that is very much a cause for concern. I'm not saying, you know, H&M gets a free pass, but you can understand if you're making a billion garments a year, it's a little bit harder to keep track of. But a small brand that releases two collections every year and really, you know, goes on about its UK design, if they can't tell you who made their clothes, then what the hell are they playing at? But yeah, made in the UK, it's ethical implications, is something Ruth and I are very passionate about. It's something even just thinking about for this episode has really, you know, shown that there's so much to discuss here. And we're absolutely going to be doing an episode on this further in series two. Yes, it's it's given us a lot to think about because I think, you know, we often talk about Scottish brands and, and made in Scotland. And I, I think a lot about localization and, you know, I'm really into that earth logic that I'm sure I've mentioned before. Um, where local is one of the key landscapes that they think is, you know, part of this transition. But it's not a silver bullet solution because we obviously have problems on our own soil and we have this complex global supply chain. We can't just switch that off, you know. We need to find a way to make it work in on an international level. But all of this is basically to say that we need more transparency and basically never be afraid to ask more details about who made your clothes. Yeah, the whole thing about who made my clothes is it's just putting human beings back into the picture, which leads us nicely onto myth number four, which is we need to keep shopping to provide jobs. This is something, I don't know about you, Ruth, I have been thinking about a lot, particularly in terms of, you know, COVID and lockdown and Topshop as a prime example. And it is complicated and I can't say that we are going to give you the perfect solution to this scenario but 
we need to we need to accept that fashion brands do not care about jobs. If they did, there would not be mass layoffs every couple of seasons or when things go slightly wrong. Like just this year, ASOS, which has seen enormous profits, laid off 500 employees at one of its UK sites back in July because they said it was to to serve their international audience. So I think it was customer service. But ultimately, they're just looking to outsource those jobs so they can save money. And Topshop, obviously the big one in discussions at the moment. Philip Green is a prime example. He does not care about jobs. He does not even care enough to fill the pensions deficit of his workers. And if we'd kept shopping at Topshop, if it wasn't in administration right now, I fully believe it still would have folded eventually. It wouldn't have taken long. And, you know, when we're looking at the whole COVID situation, what have any of these brands done to protect jobs here in the UK like if you're struggling to accept that oh well you know the garment workers in all these countries are suffering if we take away the jobs people that work in the fashion industry are suffering right here because of those same companies because they do not care how many fashion companies topped up furlough pay that just did not happen ultimately with the whole jobs argument we need a new system it's not a case of a like-for-like like replacement. Jobs are being lost and will continue to be lost. And it's with things like these, I always think, why is a government, the UK government, pushing people to get more you know, generic qualifications when they could be promoting jobs in things like the renewable sector? Like, How amazing would it be to have a real push on textile recycling? That's what this country needs and it would help you know, fill the, the gap that these fast fashion companies are making by closing. Absolutely. I got really angry about this when um, the Tories released their Green New Deal plan about green jobs, but there was not one mention of the fashion and textiles industry. But, you know, that's a rant for another day. But yeah, I think that that point about jobs in the UK is important. I mean, personally, I've worked in retail before I do what I do now. I worked in like every shop in the high street, like I've worked in Topshop, New Look, uh, Clark's, Zara, I've literally worked in every shop and in every single one I was treated like shit, I was paid minimum wage, like I hated it. So, you know, the jobs argument goes every inch of the supply chain essentially apart from head office executive level, fashion jobs are not fulfilling, they're not well paid and they're not treated well. And yeah, the Arcadia point is is really important to make because there's a big conversation about how many jobs will be lost um, from the Topshop stores and things like that. And that's really concerning, obviously. But we also need to think further down the supply chain then, you know, what will happen to all of the garment factories that rely on those regular orders from Arcadia? Will there be another huge, you know, pay up campaign issue with the cancelled orders? I don't think Topshop have still paid up for all their orders. So it's just a huge knock on effect that we need to kind of look at more holistically. Uh, there's a great episode we did recently with Tansy Hoskins, episode 19. She made some really good points kind of about this area that it's not just about providing jobs. It's about providing good jobs, well-paid jobs, fulfilling jobs. And the episode with um, Audrey from Yala uh, touches on the same thing about providing a thriving wage, not just a living wage. You know, we shouldn't have to accept oh, but at least the garment worker has a job. But it's a rubbish job. It's a terrible job. We can build better jobs. It's really about a just transition. So a lot of people have written some great articles on this idea that, you know, we're shutting down coal plants and things like that in the transition towards green energy. 
And through that, it's about retraining, you know, those co-workers. It's not just abandoning them, you know, because they rely on that income. And it's not saying fossil fuels are evil, therefore everyone that works for them is evil. It's about creating a just transition. And we need to do the same for the fashion industry. We need to retrain people. We need to create jobs for the millions of people that rely on the fashion industry for employment. This isn't about boycotting fashion. And I, I never kind of advocate for that because it's about building a better system. We don't want fashion not to exist. We want it to be better and we shouldn't have to accept it the way it is. I think overall, we just need to listen to garment workers more. If you actually follow garment worker unions on Twitter, read the work of activists like Calpone Acta, who is the garment worker turned labour rights activist. You know, she's won loads of awards for her work and her and, and thousands of other garment workers. You know, we've got the Remember Who Made Them podcast as well which um, brings some of those voices to the table. They want us to stop funding the system. They, they don't want this to continue either. It's not just about us saying this to you. It's like, listen to the people who are actually in the supply chain. They don't just want to accept these jobs. You know, they want something better and we should fight for that for them. Yeah, exactly. As we said, it's not, it's not a simple conversation. It's not cut and dry. It's not black and white. But nothing is. It's, fashion is one of the most complicated and intricate systems that there is. But anyway, let's move on to myth number five, which is capsule sustainable collections are a positive. I know that when I first started getting into ethical fashion, this was my go-to. I remember back in like 2013, um, first becoming aware of H&M Conscious, and I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. Like, I'm wearing something that that didn't hurt people. I I never thought about the fact that, that means all my other clothes did hurt people. Like I think people don't put two and two together when it comes to these collections. The total volume of these conscious or ethical or sustainable collections for big brands like Zara and H&M is tiny compared to what they are actually producing. I mean, Zara produces 12,000 designs a year and even if it is switching to and increase every year of being more sustainable fibres or whatever. That's still 12,000 designs. How many of those are going to end up in landfill? Half? Three quarters? Like, nothing is sustainable about that. And just because you shove a wee organic cotton label on half of your products does not make a company sustainable. I think what we also need to look at is the marketing of these products. Like, how hard are companies pushing their marketing of their sustainable designs compared to their full range? H&M are especially bad. And also, how do those adverts look? I remember H&M Conscious had an advert recently where they had balloons. Plastic balloons were a prominent part of this campaign, and it's like H&M. What are you not understanding? You can't even convince yourself this is sustainable. <laughs> I know, it's such a big kind of Punch and Judy show, really. And um, yeah, the H&M thing, those adverts like haunt my Instagram. It's like they're really trying to get to me. <laughs> I think they probably spend like 10 times on the marketing that they do on the products themselves. I think we, we've talked a lot about these capsule collections back in um, episode six when we did an episode about greenwashing because there's so many, like it's such a big topic and it's it's basically like the biggest bugbear of anyone who works in this space, you know, constantly seeing these new collections come out and being sent press releases about a recycled collection and all sorts like that. But when it comes down to it, these brands are playing fast and loose with the definition of sustainability, you know? They, they don't go into any more detail most of the time than something being green or eco or having a small percentage of 
an eco-material. They're confusing what sustainability really means. You know, they're leading the conversation and they're telling us what sustainability is. They're telling us that, you know, a bit of organic or recycled fibre is what means what sustainability means. But, you know, when you look into a bit more, most of these products are being sold at the same really low prices as the usual range. They're not made ethically. They're made in the exact same factories. You know, sustainability can't be this add on that just takes materials into account. It has to be people and the planet. It has to be stitched into their entire business strategy. And it can't just be this hidden trade off where some products are sustainable and the rest of their range just stays as it is. It's, it's so frustrating. But um, I think the more you become aware of this, the more easy it is to kind of see through the bullshit because now it's like your bullshit detectors, like beep, 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 beep. Like every time I see one of these adverts and it gets easier the more you kind of look out for it. Yeah, going back to the press release thing, I always think it's so funny when I get press releases. I'm like, hon, I literally dedicate my life to this. <laughs> Why do you think your 12-piece collection is going to be the thing that makes me like, oh, this brand is good now? <laughs> what are people on? <laughs> but anyway, I think it's time we wrap up with our final myth, myth number six, and that is that natural fibres are the solution. Natural fibres are important and they do have a part to play in making fashion more sustainable. Synthetic clothing is a huge problem. As many as 700,000 microplastic fibres could be released per wash of our synthetic clothing. So the industry needs to move away from these fibres for sure, but change isn't about a like for like switch. I think I've said that a lot in this episode, but it's because it's so true. We need to be aware of the volumes of these garments. Suddenly producing 10,000 organic cotton t-shirts is not the solution. And according to our friends at Extinction Rebellion, if a business as usual scenario situation with fashion continues, then the industry's impact will actually rise over the next 15 years. It is going to get worse until it reaches a projected 49% increase in climate change impact by 2030. That means that the apparel industry will be emitting 4.9 billion tonnes of CO2. We can't just suddenly all start wearing hemp and linen and then expect these problems to go away. They won't. Absolutely. Those stats, I think, you know, when you really take the time to read them are really shocking. And I'd really recommend people read the Fashion on Climate report. It's just um, available online from McKinsey. And it, it measures, you know, in, in great detail, the greenhouse gas emissions of the fashion industry. It emits 4% of all greenhouse gas emissions, and then it breaks it down into where that comes from. And a huge proportion, I think the biggest proportion is from materials. So it is very important that we do talk about materials. But when you read the report in detail, it's not just about switching from, say, polyester to cotton. It's actually about the energy that's used to produce these materials. And when you look into cotton, it's actually very resource intensive. So a lot of the suggestions that they make in that report, for example, are about the manufacturing facilities switching to renewable energy. So it's not so simple as a choice you make as a consumer, but actually about the upstream kind of manufacturing um, impact that brands can control. So again, it, the, it's it's more complicated than just comparing apples and oranges. I think as well, something that people forget is about comparing the entire life cycle of a product. So you can very easily compare two products on a shelf or say on the Good On You app or something like that to say this brand is good, this brand is bad. But actually that doesn't take into account 
how you use the product, how you care for the product, and most importantly, how you dispose of that product, because you can have a very sustainable top that ends up in landfill or, you know, there's all sorts that goes into that. And if you're actually um, worth your salt as a sustainability expert or someone like that, then you do this whole life cycle analysis because it's impossible to do it any other way. The end of life processes matter. So ultimately, materials alone are not enough. It's about the volume of production and consumption. And ultimately, it's about moving towards a more circular system because any kind of virgin fibre is going to have an impact. And any brand that tells you their product is zero impact is, is lying to you. Yes, absolutely. We know there is a lot to think about, but even just thinking about these things is the first step. It means you're on track to being a more conscious consumer. So those are our six ethical fashion myths. We hope you find this episode informative. And as always, we're always excited to chat all things ethics and sustainability with you over on the Common Threads Instagram. So this is our last episode of 2020, which I cannot believe that we've been doing this for so many months now. But we're going to be back with you mid-January with some new episodes. And we cannot wait to talk about sustainability more with you but also we were thinking about what sustainability means you know being able to sustain something so we want to make sure that we're working in a sustainable way too and you know rest is revolutionary in itself absolutely we've got to practice what we preach when it comes to our own health and well-being and on that note we just wanted to add about getting back to you all on social media and email we love helping you unpack the complexities of all these issues but at the end of the day we are just two individuals we're not a big company so please do keep chatting to us but no we might not always be able to get back to you straight away or there could be things that we just aren't best placed to help you with though we will definitely point you in the right direction as much as we can absolutely and we'll see you over at common threads podcast on instagram that's it for today i hope you've enjoyed it and that's it for 2020 so we'll see you in the new year i guess and we already have some really exciting guests lined up we can't wait to share them with you take care and have a lovely festive season Bye.